I was in an abusive relationship starting when I was a senior in high school that lasted until I was 25 with someone who was 11 years older than me. Welcome to the Secret Life Podcast. Tell me your secret. I'll tell you mine. When I first started my recovery 11 years ago, I struggled through the textbook-like material on the subject. I wanted to make the addiction and the recovery from it accessible and relatable to more people by telling it in an entertaining way. Well, I'm super excited to announce I've released my first book, Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict. If I can help just one person find a solution or at least realize they're not broken or alone, then writing this has been worth it. You can pick up the book exclusively at Amazon or signed copy at secretlifenovel.com. And the best way to support our podcast is to subscribe and share. If you haven't left a review or rating on Apple Podcasts yet, please do. It'll help more people find our show. And if you want to be a guest, shoot me a note at secretlifepodcast at iCloud.com. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Secret Life Podcast. I'm Brianne Davis Gant. Today I'm pulling back the curtains of all kinds of human secrets. We'll hear about what people are hiding from themselves or others. You know those deep, dark secrets you probably want to take to your grave. Are those lighter, funnier secrets that are very, very embarrassing? Really, the how, what, when, where, and why of it all. Today, my guest is Amanda. Now, Amanda, I have a question for you. Dun, dun, dun. What is your secret? <laughs> I, lo- I love this game. I, okay, I don't, good. <laughs> I don't feel like I'm a particularly secretive person because I, I'm such like a blabbermouth and just too chatty for my own good. Yeah, I'm an oversharer uh, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, but I do have a secret and it's sort of on the darker end of that spectrum that you were talking about. I was like, uh, can I come up with like some sort of funny secret about like how I shave my pubes or something? But no, <laughs> we're going dark. <laughs> go dark, go dark, do it. <laughs> okay. So my secret, which I just started writing about for the first time in my life, like last week, um, Ooh is that I was in an abusive relationship starting when I was a senior in high school that lasted until I was 25 with someone who was 11 years older than me. And it took me a while to recognize that what was going on was abuse, you know? Um, Obviously, we grow up with the narratives that abuse is like when someone is smacking you around um, or just like always physically hurting you. Um, And this, this we're getting dark early on, but I even remember thinking like, I almost just wish he would like smack me in the face. So I would like know for sure that this is abuse. No, Um, I understand that. I, 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 when I say, you know, I've dealt with emotional incest and I'm like, I wish sometimes it was physical so I could then identify it easier because when it's emotional abuse or it's mental abuse, it's very gray. And you're like, wait, that did that just happen? Like you question your, your instincts, right? Exactly. And now that I'm an adult, I'm actually the same age now that he was when we started dating. 
So he was 29 and you were what, 17, 18? I was 18. I had just turned 18. I was a senior in high school. Where did you meet him? So he was my friend's older brother Mm. who um, lived in California and I grew up in Baltimore and um, he would come to visit once a year for Christmas. And I was always a very precocious child. I liked to impress adults with my grown up banter, (laughs) not even wisdom. I just like to tell a dirty joke and have the adults laugh at like, oh, how adorable this like, and I'm very, I'm small too, as a human. So like, here's this like four foot tall, like 12 year old kid. I just loved having like a zinger to pull out of my pocket at the grownups table at a dinner party, you know? Yeah. I mean, even with the pubes comment, when you first said you're like, shave my pubes, I was like, whoa, we're going there. I love that. Like, cause I have a dirty mind too, but there's something about, you know, we like to impress. We like to shock for the shock value. 100%. Like it, wasn't even about sex. Like this, I would be making these jokes when I was like 10 years old. Like it was really just for the conversational camaraderie to loosen people up, to shock people. Like that's all it was. Um, And when you're a kid, like you kind of have this built-in trust that adults are going to take care of you, you know, like you have this would hope, but that's not true. That's not true with us human beings. We're a bunch of cuckoos. Exactly. And so I just, you know, I, I never assumed that um, someone, and I guess this says a lot about my childhood, that I was surrounded by people I could trust generally Mm -hmm. in childhood that I assumed that like no one would ever take advantage of me, you know, especially because I am a skeptical person, an extremely skeptical person. This is like what informs the work that I do as a writer. Like I am just always questioning um, things around me in society and culture, whatever that are, you know, assumed to be just how it is. Um, And so I thought I would be like the last person to end up in a quote unquote. That's such a stigma because I have to say like, you know, when people get abused, they don't really abuse like the weak people. It's like the people that are inquisitive, that are willing to like look at all, you know, that are very intelligent. A lot of people I've spoke to are then put in those situations they never thought they would be in. That is so true. And, you know, I I just finished writing this book about cults. It's about the social science of cults. What's it called? It's called Cultish, the Language of Fanaticism. Oh. And it's about the language of cults from okay. Scientology all the way to Soul Cycle. Okay. So the wide spectrum of cults. And it really wasn't until, I mean, I have been out of that relationship for many years now, but I've, you process it in waves, you know, like it's not like you get out of the relationship and it comes over you like a tsunami and you're like, I'm that free. Exactly. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> there was, there was an initial feeling like I shot out of that relationship, like a cannon, let me tell right. you. Um, but mostly because it just went on for far too long. Um, but I, yeah, but I, it's not like I was able to immediately process everything. I, I'm years out of it and I'm still processing and still, you know, understanding what happened to me and why. And the process of writing this book was actually extremely illuminating because 
in the book, I'm trying to unpack the social science of cult influence, like what causes people to join and stay in fanatical fringe groups, including some of the most notorious cults of all time, but also including groups that are more along that cult spectrum, like multi-level marketing companies and stuff like that. Um, And I believed that prevailing wisdom, those myths that people who wind up in cults are desperate, disturbed, you know, intellectually deficient. Exactly. Exactly. But like what you're saying, they're the same people that wind up in abusive relationships. You know, they're extremely idealistic people. They're people who are seeking adventure. They're people seeking the truth too. a lot of people I've talked to, you know, they're seeking the truth or real connection or understanding and they get trapped because you can get manipulated and, you know, the covert ways people use other people, you get, you know, blindsided by that. Completely. And like in a cult context, those techniques of manipulation, we would be called like brainwashing or mind control. And in an abusive relationship, they might be called grooming or gaslighting, you know, but it's all the same. And when I realized um, that there are so many, I mean, all of the cult survivors that I talked to for the book were these, you know, young, open-minded people who mm-hmm. joined up with whatever like fringy spiritual group they wound up in for for literally the same reasons why I decided I decided to enter a relationship with this person. It's because like everybody else had a boyfriend, everybody else was in love, and I had never been lo- in love, and I wanted to experience that. Yeah. And you know, I wanted. Uh, I thought that this was like my path, like my purpose. You know, I it was I was going to be special. This person was. This much older charismatic person was telling me that I was a genius, that I was, that I had something An to An old say. soul. Do they use yes. that old soul? You're just wisely on your years. You're like special and unique. And I, I just, I have this connection. Are we a soulmate? Did he use all no, that? You know, I'm not, like laughing because I've well, heard that. <laughs> because I feel like that stuff is like almost cheesy. Like I might've clocked that stuff. He was very clever. Like he met me on my level. He, mm-hmm. I, I think he figured out like what I wanted the world to see in me. Right. And he fed me that. Um, And I don't think he was doing it on purpose, right? Like, I don't think he meant to exploit a teenage girl. I think he just like liked how the power dynamic felt and rolled with it. And he, you know, he was an insecure person. And I think the reason why people gaslight other people is because they feel unstable in their own thoughts and emotions. And so they feel the need to flip it around on the other person and make them feel crazy and make them feel invalidated and make them distrust their own perception of reality. Um, And so, yeah, I think, I mean, of course, he without consciously realizing it, liked the feeling that I was this young person hanging on his every word. I, I was so, I mean, I was so easily impressed. Like I was 18 years old. I was just, I just thought it was cool that he could like book a hotel room. Yeah. You're like, you have a credit card to book a hotel or you could get a a car, you could rent a car. But here's my question. I want to ask you before we get too far ahead. Yeah. What did people in your life know you were seeing him? Did you keep that a secret? Did people accept it? Like, what was that dynamic when you started quote unquote dating? Yeah. So the secret at first was part of the fun. 
So our flirtation, and I'm putting that in scare quotes for the listeners, I'm putting that in quotations because I didn't realize that's what it was. Our flirtation began over text message. Mm-hmm. I like texted him some joke. I like stole his number out of my friend's phone one day while my whole friend group was all texting their boyfriends. And I was like, oh, you all are so boring. Like I'm going to text someone. And then I stole his phone out of, or stole his number out of her phone mm-hmm. again, just as sort of like a precocious joke. Um, and I sent him something silly. And from there, we really started texting back and forth. And we were living across the country. Like I was living in my parents' house yeah. in Baltimore, where I'm from, because I was in high school. And he was like working on a movie set in LA. Um, and oh, so no, you didn't I, tell me he was in the business. That makes it even worse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, 100%. And like not doing as well as he wished he worked. So, oh, wow. Yeah. He yeah. was hook, line and sinker. He wanted that attention and that validation. Completely. I was like this, you know, fresh faced beam of light that was like, I'm going to make you feel good about yourself while you're getting shat on by your bosses, basically. Perfect. Perfect. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is all crystal clear to me now. Um, But I didn't even realize that he was like courting me. You know what I mean? Like, I just thought, oh, like, this is my friend's brother who's humoring me with a few rounds of text banter. And even when this evolved into like late night phone calls Mm -hmm. that would last hours and now. And now looking back, like, I know he had like a glass of whiskey in his hand. Like, I know he was just, she was treating this as like a romantic, coy, you know, like flirty thing. And I was just like, wow, I can't believe this cool guy wants to talk to me. (laughs) For three three hours at 1 a.m. But here's the thing. And I always, and I love talking about it is like the texting, the on the phone, there's this false sense of intimacy that is established, but you still really don't know the person. And I had this whole debate with one of my friends that's been DMing strangers on Instagram. I'm like, you do not know this person. And she was like, yes, I do. I'm like, what's his favorite color? What's all, you don't even know those answers. And even if you did, you didn't know them until you're in person with the person. You don't know completely. It was the perfect way to reel me in because Mm -hmm. you're exactly right. Like he was presenting this like really alluring version. Yes. So, and I actually remember like on that intimacy note, when we would be on the phone and he would like walk down the street to, you know, buy a pack of cigarettes at the corner store or whatever. Of course he smoked and I thought that was the coolest thing. (laughs) Um, Anyways, when he would like walk to the corner store to buy a pack of cigarettes, I would overhear him like talk to the person at the counter. And those are my favorite parts of the phone call because it felt like a window into like his actual life. Um, I was like, who, like, who is this person? And why do they want to talk to me? You know? Um, and his voice would like change a little bit when he would talk to the other person. Um, and he would go from like, you know, clever banter mode to just like, I'm, you know, going about my business mode. And I was just like really intrigued by that. So then, you know, it came out that he was interested in me romantically is how he put it. And I felt so stupid that I just like went along with it. I was like, yeah, like you do. (laughs) And do you think you did like him or you were just kind of living in that fantasy of what was presented? 
I think I really liked what he represented adulthood again right. like I was obsessed with adults I wanted the approval of adults right and here was like this window into a new adventurous life like I was about to graduate high school and this felt like you know the fast track to an exciting life which I had always desperately wanted got it um so it wasn't so much him again like I hadn't even seen him in person in a long time and like what 18 year old kid who's been like making out with other high schoolers is really going to be like physically attracted to like a grown man yeah. you know like it's weird and I remember it feeling really weird but I just like pushed past it um again like for the bigger picture yeah. uh but we did keep it a secret at first for obvious reasons it was taboo. Um, I don't think he wanted his family to know. I certainly did not want my parents to know. I did not have the sort of relationship with my parents that I could like, you know, come to them with some sort of intimate secret, you know? Um, and when I finally did, yeah. How'd that go? It was, it was really uncomfortable. I remember when I first told my mom that like I had something to tell her, she thought I was pregnant and it wasn't, it wasn't that bad. Um, but you know, I remember she did like get on the phone with my friend's mom just to like check out that this guy wasn't a weirdo. Right. Um, but of course, how would his how would his mom know what he's like in relationships? You know. Yeah. Um, and across the country or wherever. Yeah. Like, she doesn't know exactly. his everyday life and what he's doing and stuff like that. No. And I remember like he flew to my hometown to have lunch with my parents. There is not much that they could have done. Like their hands were tied. I was 18. Um, I was a stubborn person. Like if they had tried to control me, it would have been a worse situation. Oh, no. I'm, the parents are – you have no control. I mean – yeah, younger than age and you're committed. I mean, I started acting out on my addiction when I was in eighth grade. So there was nothing my parents could have done to stop what I was doing. It's just if you don't create those boundaries really early, like you get trapped in those situations. And being a parent yeah. is hard. So you don't have to justify your parents out. No, right. Oh, completely. <laughs> like my parents, they did the they did the right thing. But sometimes people will ask me, like, why didn't they get involved or whatever? It's like they they couldn't have, you know? Yeah. Um, but again, like similar to the the cult comparison, I think they just thought, you know, okay, like here's our smart daughter that we've raised. Well, she's running off to do this thing that I kind of wish she weren't doing, whether it's striking up with a potentially not so great partner or a not so great, like fringy group. Right. And I think they just like crossed their fingers that I would get what I needed from it and come safely home. You right, know? right, right. Yeah, um, that makes total sense. And if your child gets in one of those groups, the parent usually can't do anything about it, especially if no. they're over age and you're like, your hands are tied. They, what can you do? Yeah. You can just keep saying, you know, we love you. We love, you know, <laughs> because yeah. the more you push, the more, you know, a child, especially a young adult pushes back. And it was good that they remained close to me um, because I, after, so I went to college in New York okay. and our relationship was long distance and I had to get all these side jobs while I was in college so I could afford plane tickets to go visit him because he didn't like to come to New York because where he was, was he going to stay in my dorm room? Like it was weird. Um, and once he did have to stay in my dorm room and it ended in this explosive fight, I mean, he was an out, he is an alcoholic and um, a rageful one at that. And so 
there were just situations when I think he he understood that this was a fucked up dynamic um, and the appropriate and those burned bright for him when he was like staying in my dorm and he had to be like signed in every time he came in and signed out every time he came out. And uh, there are just like too many instances that I don't even care to recall when he would get just like so angry, punch walls. And later I learned, I have a lot of friends who work in mental health and psychology. And later I would learn that if someone is being violent around you like even just with objects that's physical abuse too yeah it is I had one one person you know get that physical like punching things near me and it was like my I remember just like floating out of my body and kind of watching it and completely disconnecting because I just was like in this space where you're like I don't know what to do did you find yourself experiencing that where you were like what is going on yes I mean I would be like hysterically crazy crying, but I would also be totally floating out of your body. Exactly. Like you're saying. And I find that even now, like when I'm in an argument, like that doesn't even have to be that heated, like just your run of the mill disagreement. I still find myself slightly floating out of my body because of that conditioning. Yeah. It's that trauma. Like our body instantly goes to that. Like, I'm just going to disconnect. So I don't have to exactly feel what is going on in this moment because it is abuse. Any form of like violence or screaming can be abuse. Totally. Um, Especially when it's coming from someone who is so imposing, like someone who is bigger than you, way older than you, claims to be, and he would throw my age in my face all the time. Um, <laughs> and so when you, and it's like, well, whose fault is it that you're dating someone who's this young, you know, <laughs> like, I know. let me go. Um, so yeah, so it was, Can it was a complicated name situation. Another, a couple other things that were covert. So if a listener is like hearing going, hey, wait, I floated out of my body in the arguments. What other things did you realize that were similar to a cult situation that you experienced mm. that you can remember? Yeah, I think, you know, he, he definitely, the love bombing, first Ooh, of all. Yeah, that um, love bombing. <laughs> that in a relationship, again, might be called grooming, but he created this sense at the beginning of the relationship that I was like the only person in the world for me having done nothing special. Like I, again, we hadn't even met in person, but he was telling me exactly what I wanted to hear, that I was a genius, that I had something big to say to the world. Um, and that with him, like we could create something amazing. And he would, you know, confide in me about the projects that he was working on. And he wanted to get my opinion. Of course he didn't really care about my opinion. Like, what do I know about like some commercial that you're editing? Like, I don't know. Um, but I, yeah. So he, he just made me feel extremely special, extremely seen um, and could, and also like he, he knew that I was young and that I was insecure um, and he would use my confidence as like puppet strings, you know, like when he was feeling insecure, um, which of course, like I wasn't emotionally evolved enough or like perspective enough to pick up on, like when he was having an insecure day in my mind, like how could he ever be insecure? He was this cool older guy who had a career in LA. Like what did he have to be insecure about? Um, But on a day when, you know, I just didn't realize that something had gone wrong and he took, um, he took 
like blows at work really, really hard. He just didn't have a lot of resilience. He didn't have coping skills. Um, but he, he would come back and he would, you know, turn that insecurity around on me and he would like bring it home. And if I wanted to talk to him about something, he would say just like some little dig um to make me feel bad about myself yeah so like Um, he's feeling bad so he wants to make everybody around him feeling bad and I I will admit I used to do that in partnerships if I was having a bad day I would then make everybody else have a bad day so I didn't feel so alone and like the only person having feelings yeah which is horrible I sound horrible (laughs) no no but I mean I think a lot of us do that and it doesn't make you abusive I think when abuse enters the picture is when they have so much power over you and they know that you're not no no I've abused people I'm I'm a hundred percent okay with admitting (laughs) that I was a horrible person for a really long time but at least I know it and I've worked through it I'm just saying oh that's huge yeah (laughs) that's actually huge and it's the way that you grow, you know, and I don't know that this person will ever understand what they did as abuse. Um, And the other thing, and this is really interesting, you know, that like, it's like a Maya Angelou quote. It's like when someone shows you who they are, believe Believe them. them. Yes. Um, I love that. (laughs) Me too. And I remember um, very early, the first time I'd ever come to visit him in LA and he like took me to Palm Springs and it all just felt so glamorous. I remember him telling me straight up, like as we were sitting by the pool, drinking champagne. That's the other thing that's kind of culty is when you're plying people with mind altering substances, um, especially when they're underage. Like I am such a curmudgeon about like underage drinking now. Not like if you're going to do it, that's chill, whatever. Everyone does it. But like, I'm never going to be the one to buy an 18 year old a beer at a bar and like sneak it to them because I just think it um, I just think it like delegitimizes the power of that age dynamic. Yeah. Um, like when you have a much older person telling you, like, I want you to get fucked up that. And is- it's the opposite, opposite sex. And you guys are seeing each other. And it's like, is that appropriate to give an 18 year old a drink that you're dating when you really shouldn't be dating? Like the whole exactly. situation is just shady, shady. So shady. And and he had a, an alcohol problem. And so like catching up was not good. Um, so anyway, I remember us sitting by the pool, like drinking and him telling me, you know, like. I just, you know, I, I should let you know. And he, and he phrased it in this almost very romantic veiled way. He was like, I, I need to let you know that like, I have moods, like I, my moods really fluctuate. I of course didn't know what that meant. And that wasn't even like my age. That was just an incredibly mysterious thing to say. Um, later I would learn that he just has depression and anxiety and untreated alcoholism. Like, he had issues and he would not do anything to address them. Like I'm not against dating someone with mental health issues or addiction issues, nothing like that. It's just, are they working on themselves? Um, so the end, so it had been seven years. Um, the relationship was, we're like roommates who didn't even like each other essentially. Um, oh, so you we, moved, did you move to LA and move in? I did. Home? Okay. I moved, I, at, right after college, I, it was like the day after my last final and I did not want to leave New York, but I moved mm-hmm. for him 
And I, I still live in LA and I love LA. I live in Silver Lake. Like my life feels totally different than it, than it did then when we were living on the West side. Um, but anyways, I, uh, and my family moved to Southern California too. So like everyone I have in my life is here, but we had been dating for seven years and it, we just like really, really were not happy. Um, and I, his, he didn't, he didn't have as much as, of an effect on me by then as he used to, because I was 25, like I was an adult and yeah. I could sort of like detach myself from the relationship a little bit better. We would still get into screen fights. I'd still cry all that stuff, but, um, it just didn't like rock my world the way that it did when I was a teenager. Um, but what well, you might've up- been so desensitized by that time. You know what I mean? Like a part of you shuts down when it goes on for so long. It could have been that too. And also his drinking had improved by then. Like um, just, he, he wasn't, he wasn't, going to a 12 step program or anything, but he, you know, it had just whatever he was. Yeah. He was kind of dry. Um, he was like white knuckling through it. Um, and so I, what, what happened was I, I got a book deal mm-hmm. and that was kind of the beginning of the end because this was like the beginning of my real professional adulthood. Like I, it was, it became clear that like I was going to just kind of like have a bigger life than he was. Um, and that, and he put it that way to me once, like I was just destined for like a bigger life than he was going to have. And he could not handle that very well. He was constantly, um, just, you know, verbally abusing me and my ideas and telling me that this book was stupid and that, um, the industry was going to, he told me the industry was going to eat me alive. Um, whatever. So, Um, that was kind of the beginning of the end. I, um, I had taken six months off my full-time job. I was working as a beauty editor at the time. And, um, I took, they let me go on book leave. And for the final month of those six months, I decided to go to Italy by myself. Um, I, I have like an obsession with Italy to speak Italian. I've lived there at a few points during my life. And um, I had gone there once with him and it wasn't a good experience. Um, we we got along okay, but I just remember thinking to myself during that trip, which was years before, like I'm gonna go back by myself one day and like really assimilate and and live the live here in the way that I want to. Right. So I was like, this is my chance. And right before I left, he had been like disappearing without telling me he would like go to Palm Springs for a few days with his coworkers. Um, And it just became clear that like this was really ending. So we decided to just sort of like soft end it like before I left, not like full on like it's over. Um, But we we like broke up in a sort of not that harsh, not that definitive, but like, yes, we're broken up sort of way. So, and he promised me that while I was gone, he was going to go to therapy. Like he was gonna, you know, we had gone to couples therapy like twice. Right. Um, but he was like, I, and, and that therapist had recommend he go to his own individual therapy and he was gonna, he was like, I'm going to do it. I'm gonna, you know, he had like homework while I was gone. Um, and I flew not just to Italy, but to this tiny independent micro state in Italy called San Marino. Mm-hmm. And, I lived in this beautiful little colorful bungalow with 
this uh, with this San Marinese jazz singer named Valentina and we became like sisters and it was in this like tiny medieval mountain town of course like three days in I met a boy who was like just the sweetest like small town Italian boy it was like Aladdin he like showed me the world you know what I mean um and we just had this like really intense passionate affair like fling it was an affair it was a fling for the month that I was there like all these kismet things fell into place like and it was just like the adventure of a lifetime and it gave me so much clarity and when I landed I I I flew to New York I was gonna spend a week in New York with my best friend Mm -hmm. um and when I landed in New York I was on like the bus heading back from JFK to to Queens where she lived and I called him we hadn't spoken at all yeah I I called him and we like officially ended things he had not gone to therapy of course yeah um he had moved out um and the breakup itself was like so warm so compassionate so like just an exhale, you know, mm-hmm. um, like the relationship had been so fraught. And I want to say too, like, and my, I have so many therapist friends, like my therapist friends have reminded me that there were good things in the relationship too. Like if there weren't good things, and this is like a cult, if there weren't good things, I would never have entered a relationship with him. And I would never have stayed for that. Of course. That long. I mean, but that's the thing we get tricked. It's a trick. It's like, yes, there's good moments and there's bad moments, but it's like, if the bad moments out, way the good moments but we as you know wanting to connect go like oh they're shining light on me they're giving me love and then a couple minutes later it could be the dark like it's that push pull of the back forth which is hard to get out of completely and it's also just like it's you have this delusional optimism that one day, if you just stick it out, things are going to get better. Like yeah, they were if he at the gets beginning. that job or he gets confident or you get this, like things will get better. Maybe if you Literally, have a child yes. or you get married, it will be better. And it's like, no, no, no. Like it, you cannot like hope for the future. It gets better. Like you have to look now. And I think that's what I loved having you on is to show like, yeah, there's great moments. Therapists say there's great moments, but the abuse is still there. The it's still the back there. Back and forth, the wishy-washy, the the roller coaster is still there. And that's not to say that if you have like a rough patch in your relationship, you should fly the coop. Like that's not it. But if you spend your whole relationship waiting for it to get better, that's not good. And you know, these ingrained human reasoning flaws will come into play. Like we have sunk cost fallacy. Like we think the longer you stay in something, that means the longer you should stay. Like I've been in it this long. I can't quit now. Yeah, like the cult things. Like I can't, I've been in this for seven years. I can't get out of this. This is my whole life. All my friends are here. Everybody I know is here. I don't have any money. They have all my money. It's all exactly. No, it's literally exactly that. And so, uh, you know, in realizing those similarities between my relationship and that cult leader and a follower, I was able to just like have so much more compassion and empathy and understanding for people who wind up in a group like Nexium or even like a QAnon situation. Like, yes, they are doing awful, unspeakable things, but I, I like sort of get it. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, empathy and compassion that people get in situations where they don't feel they can get out of and you're manipulated and they shine a light on you and it feels like the best thing in the world and then they take it away and it's the most depressing. And it's that that I love that you identify as the same as a bad relationship that isn't healthy. 
Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, talking about all this, like I have not talked about this with a stranger (laughs) other than a therapist ever. And um, so it feels very healing. Oh my God, we're so over time. But if anybody wants to, you know, check out your book, check out your work, where can they find you right now? Um, Great. So um, you can find me on Instagram at Amanda underscore Montel. I'm also launching a podcast in June about cults called Sounds Like a Cult. Um, It's called Sounds Like a Cult and it's about the everyday cults we all follow. Um, So... And then my book, Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism, um, will be published June 15th, available wherever books are sold. You can pre-order it now. Um, I also wrote a book called Word Slut, and that's available wherever books are sold too. Yay! Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing that secret and what you went through and how you got to the other side. And I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. (laughs) And if you want to be on the show, please email me at secretlifepodcast at iCloud.com. Until next time. Thanks again for listening to the show. Please subscribe, rate, share, or send me a note at secretlifepodcast.com. And if you'd like to check out my book, head over to secretlifenovel.com or Amazon to pick up a copy for yourself or someone you love. Thanks again. See you soon.